Please listen carefully. I'm Jeffrey Sidoris, and this is Process Driven. In this episode, photographer and author David Dushman and I discuss how leading a creative life is about more than just making art. We also talk about motivation, intent, and how we can learn to repurpose some of the fears and failures that hold each of us back into fuel to help us move forward. It's a fascinating conversation that I'm sure you're going to love. Here we go. little piece of trivia, David. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is almost four years to the day that you and I sat down for our very first conversation in 2010. No kidding. Yeah. Almost to the day. Where does the time go, eh? I, it's very funny. Um, You've grown up so fast. <laughs> that's right. I'm in big boy pants now. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder, you know, as I was thinking about this, I wonder, accident notwithstanding, uh, how much of, of, of your current sort of creative trajectory did you see coming, if any of it? None of it. None of it. Absolutely. Honestly, absolutely none of it. I, in the broadest possible terms, I've always been fairly in touch with what I love doing and, and what I have uh, a propensity for and the things that I most certainly do not have a propensity for. So, you know, a very sort of broad sense of where I wanted to go. But the the specifics of my life have always surprised me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always I've always kind of zigzagged, but those zigzags have always surprised me as much as they've surprised anyone else. I might have seen them coming one or two turns before anyone else, but they really honestly have always surprised me that the, the life that I am living now, uh, f- you know, four years post that first conversation with you is I could never have anticipated. Right. Right. Uh, you, you've just completed your, your 412th book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, just published. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've written 430 or so. But I'm kind of pacing. Yeah, you're you're like Stephen King. <laughs> you just you're out there. Um, uh, it's, it's gone horribly, horribly awry. I never intended this for this right, to happen. Right. Well, but what a what a terrific uh, additional creative outlet, though that that not only feeds your photography, but uh, I would imagine at least informs and even maybe challenges it in a number of ways that 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 maybe just the photography by itself just isn't capable of yeah it it does i I sometimes worry that you know my audience is going to go grow to the point through my writing that people are going to go really he makes he's a photographer he makes (laughs) photographs i know that that's trivia good to know Um, yeah yeah you know good to know uh but it, it yeah it has you know, everyone's got a package of, of gifts and skill sets and, and mine just happens to include writing. And, and the more I do it, the more I, uh, the more I fall in love with this particular kind of creativity. And, and I, I used to actually worry, I thought, Oh my gosh, what, what would happen if someone found out I was a better writer than a photographer? And, right. and increasingly I think, you know what, that that's great because I think my legacy will probably be left with words, uh, through my words rather than, than through my photographs. And I'm okay with that. I, I actually love writing and I think the two skill sets, uh, combine beautifully and truthfully, the, the fact that I'm as right writing as much as I am and that that writing's being so well received, it takes some of the pressure off my photography. It allows me to create with, 
uh, a greater sense of sort of autonomy and play than, sure. than I think I did a few years ago when I was making my living much more as an assignment photographer and, and my entire, literally my entire life kind of revolved around photography and the, the ability to produce. Now I can kind of cut that a little slack and be a little more playful with the process. Sure. Sure. Uh, let's go back for a minute to before you had written within the frame mm-hmm. uh, and, and before it was on store shelves and, and had become uh, as popular as it has. Had you always identified with, with becoming a writer? Is, is writing something that you always sort of knew that you would be doing in addition to a photography? Well, I, 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 th- I think so. I don't know that I would have quite put it that way. I think sometimes other, other people can, can peg that about us before we can about us or before we're willing to say so about ourselves. But I have written since I was a kid, I was surrounded by books. One of the great legacies of, of growing up the way I did is my, my mother and my, everyone in my family read, uh, mm-hmm. surrounded by, by shelves and shelves of books. And I was reading, you know, my classmates were all reading Dick and Jane and I was reading James Clovell's Shogun or, or nice. some, you know, great thing. I, and, and not because I was a precocious kid necessarily. I mean, I was, but it's not because of that. Sure. Um, I just read a lot and I loved story. And so it's no surprise looking back that I've, I've come this far with, um, you know, with words because mm-hmm. I do love them. And in fact, um, it, if there's ever a criticism, if you read a, any of my Amazon reviews, the, the common criticism is that I like words a little too much. Right. And uh, one I, of I the, don't agree. One of the, well, <laughs> you know what? It's either like it or you don't. If yeah. you don't, you don't like um, a storyteller who's going to take you down a rather winding road and you're like, just hurry up and get me there already. You're just not my audience and right. I'm okay with that. But one of the uh, reviews on on the um, the French um, version of Amazon, Amazon.fr, because a lot of my books are, are all my books actually are published in French and about a dozen other languages. And, and um, this one happens to be a language that I, I speak with, you know, some fluency, although it's not pretty. Um, so I go on to Amazon.fr uh, just to kind of see what the the reviews say about me and see if anyone's abusing me in another language. And, um, <laughs> and so I went to, uh, I went to amazon.fr and, uh, and one of the reviews, you know, Amazon reviews, they have stars and then an actual review, but they all have some kind of title that you have to give. Sure. Well, this one was, this one was called, uh, their title of the review was Boku de blah, blah, which means a lot of blah, blah. <laughs> nice. Um, essentially uh, echoed the criticism from any of the English speaking Amazon sites that right. uh, David does in fact like his words and um, given, given an opportunity, just like in an interview to answer a question, yes or no, I will answer and then add three or 400 words to that. Uh, so love it. I like words. Love and it. if you don't like it, then, you know, suck it up because uh, there are there are much briefer authors out there i am not among them yes well who likes brevity really well, psh, i think it was probably mark twain that said you know i didn't have time to write you a short letter so i wrote you a long one like i sort of i sort of feel like that i probably write just a lot because i'm just lazy probably that's the key to my productivity <laughs> is is there a novel in you somewhere is that is that something that's interesting? Maybe informed or inspired by by the places or people that you've that you've met along the way? Yeah, you know, 
There, there probably is. I mean, there was. I, I've, I've written some kids' stories, and I've, I've written a, almost completed a novel, though that is, uh, I think, mercifully, um, has been lost to the uh, the sands of time. I have no idea where it was, but it was called Finding Isaac, and it was a overly indulgent um, biogra- biography, you know, about a, a comedian who loses his laughter and mm. um, loses his kind of. It just kind of goes into a bit of an existential funk and. It was it was needed at the time because I was in an existential funk and it was very cathartic. But um, I, I think uh, audiences the the world over can be grateful that I have no longer have access to that manuscript. So <laughs> yeah, lost you know, somewhere. Yeah, I, I've thought about it. Um, I I've read so much about the art of writing and I find so many parallels between the art of writing, creativity at large, and then also specifically photography. Um, that to be honest is a little daunting, but I, it's in the back of my head, kind of in that, you know, Stephen Pressfield war of art kind of sense where I, I, I kind of feel it like, a there's, there's a resistance building up to it. And that's sure. giving me this first suggestions. I think that actually that's the direction. That's a direction that I, I may go in the future is towards, you know, some kind of fiction it will be a short story written written with way way too many words. Um, so <laughs> right. therefore, a novel. So I really only have to write a short story with a lot of words, and I've got a novel, which is nice. Right. You've mentioned that a beautiful anarchy is uh, your first book, not really written specifically for photographers, but more for anyone struggling with what it means to live a creative life. Uh, did you know that this was the direction you wanted to go in before you even started writing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for for several years, people have been telling me that my blog, which is my kind of has been my primary and most consistent output for writing, that it's more than just about photography, that it is about um, life. Sure. And so I took that feedback to heart and started thinking, what, what about a book um, for creatives at large and even people who don't self-identify as creatives, people that go, oh, I'm not, not really creative because the more I think about the creative process and I've written about that for photographers specifically, the more I see parallels between the way we create our art and the way we intentionally live out our lives and create a life um, with the same kind of principles. And, mm-hmm. um, and ultimately, you know, we have this, this canvas uh, of if we're lucky, you know, 80, 90 years, whatever, um, to, to paint something astonishing and, and authentic on. Um, and, you know, you referenced my, my, um, or did you, I can't remember now. <laughs> we've had so many conversations, yeah. but you know, we've, we've talked about this, this accident I had in Italy at three, three plus years ago. And, sure. and that kind of, you know, it shook, shook me to my core. I was already very keenly aware of the brevity of life, but I was so certain in the process of, of having this accident that I wasn't going to make it, that it sort of reshuffled and recalibrated my priorities a little bit and, and reminded me of, of the urgency. I think the reason people are not, uh, living their lives with, with intention is that, that, that there's the myth of tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow Well, tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There's only today. And Tomorrow may not exist in a form that allows you to do your work. You you know, it, it may be tomorrow may not come before there's a cancer diagnosis or the person closest to you leaves you or dies or sure. I mean, not to be morbid or depressing, but that's life, yes. frankly. And, yeah, it is. And if we don't anticipate the possibility of that 
um, it, we will get to the end of those 80, 90 years if we're so lucky and, and lie on a deathbed with the classic regrets of the dying and say, oh my gosh, I wish I had done this. I wish, I wish, I wish. Right. And I would rather, um, anticipating that, fill my uh, vocabulary with words like I will. Sure. You know, I will, I want, um, you know, pay attention to my whims and desires and intentionally splash the brightest possible paint on that canvas, even if it's messy as hell, even if I have to scrape that paint off and try again and fail. I mean, that's an assumed, right. you know, it's, right. it's well, that's, that's the process, isn't it? Totally. Creativity totally. is not it's, neat. It's not. And that is, that is not a liability. That's not, Oh, I love creativity. Despite the fact that it's messy. I, I think the fact that it's messy is, is deeply human and it's the fight against that messy process and the need to get it right and the fight against uncertainty that that m- makes it such a struggle instead of merely an effort mm-hmm. you know there's i think there's a friend of mine i went camping with this weekend actually um he used to be heavily involved with uh, uh uh, Pixar Canada before they, they recently closed it down. And he was talking to me about the difference between struggle and effort. And it was, it's a concept I've kind of been bouncing around ever since he mentioned it. And I think part of it for creatives is in our expectations. You know, when we expect perfection, we, we struggle to get there. When we embrace imperfection, uh, the effort to do our work is still there, but that, that struggle and that I always feel like we're kind of missing the the standard that we've set for ourselves. I, I'm I'm not sure we're doing anything except sabotaging our process. Sure. You know, it's, it's like photographers who come back after a day of photographing and instead of saying, wow, I really learned a lot and, and I made 10 really beautiful images or one beautiful image, image they, they come back and they complain about all the crap that they, they produced. Sure. And I, and I got nothing and, good and, today. And, yeah. I was, yeah. Or I, I did, but, ah, oh, man, you know, 300 really crappy photographs. Well, you know, what, what artist comes back, what painter comes back from a day of working and says, you know, I, I painted a beautiful landscape, but all the crap I had to sketch to get there. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> right. you know, yeah, okay. the underpainting here is you don't want to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't focus on, on what it took to get you there. That's the process that the point is, did you enjoy the journey? Did, sure. did you just enjoy creating? Even if today all you came back with was crap, did you enjoy being out there and wrestling with the muse and, and discovering something new about your process or about yourself? I'd like to read from the book if, if you don't mind and, and ask you to expand on this, on this part. Cause it, it's, it centers about uh, around creativity and you write quote I get twitchy when I hear someone tell me they aren't really creative. We're all creative but we've allowed the arts to co-opt the word while making every other area of human creativity feel a little too self-conscious about using it end quote. What do you mean by that and and what do you tell the person that insists that they're not creative? I think it's our nature. I think it is our very nature to be creative. Now, how that um I hate this word because it's taken on such kind of fluffy meaning, but how that manifests or incarnates in our life uh, will differ from person to person. But I would contend that any entrepreneur is by nature creative because they are creating uh, a business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, A mother is creative in the sense that she not only in partnership with the father creates a child, but in raising that child is creating a human being. And yes, it's collaborative with, you know, with the, the paint and the canvas um, in this case, but yes, we are all creative. And that's, that is where that's kind of the point at which realizing that um, my book 
which was initially going to be written just kind of for self-identifying creatives Mm -hmm. and for photographers uh, specifically became so much bigger because I realized the creative process is in fact the, the life process, if, if you will. And um, I, I think people that say I'm not really creative don't believe that they don't make things, make a difference, make, you know, um, make meals, make children, make, you know, m- m- just make things in general. They believe that unless it's art, and usually that's art with a capital A, sure. uh, they just feel kind of self-conscious about saying it. And I think our words and our beliefs about ourselves are important. I think the minute you say, I'm not really creative, you're creating a sabotaging, you're actually creating something by saying you're not creative. How weird is that? Mm-hmm. You're creating a sabotaging kind of um, feedback loop and and not thinking, oh, I am creative. I'm just differently creative. And then exploring the creative process. You're cutting an entire chunk of possibilities off from yourself simply because you're not creative in the way that other people are creative because you don't paint, you don't sculpt. Um, and therefore quote, I'm not creative. And I think that telling yourself that is, is so destructive. You ask a four year old, you know, if they're creative, if they can draw, of course they can draw every four year old can draw. Right. Right. And it's, it's that old story about a sort of, um, you know, Picasso saying we, uh, every child can, is an artist. We spend our lifetime kind of reclaiming that. Mm -hmm. I would argue that art is anything that you put your life and soul into in an authentic way and, and create something. I think you can make art of your life. I mean, mother Teresa, I'm guessing never laid a a brush on a canvas, but she create art with her life. My God, of course. Yes. And, And someone like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or, or, I mean, insert name of, of uh, I mean, inventors, people, the guy that, you know, Banting and Bass, the two guys that created insulin. Right. Is that art? I mean, you'd sort of look at it in that classic definition of creativity and go, well, no, they were, they were scientists. Right. Well, if that's, if that's not art, I, I don't know what is. Well, and even, even now in, in the field of science, they're, they're coming sort of back around and becoming more and more creative with theories, whether or not they they can support them immediately they're getting much more creative well maybe this occurs and maybe this happens and not being so rigid to to what we think we know in quotes right and yeah. and you know that's the, that's a great example i mean you look at someone like you know galileo and and the developments that he sort of you know they begin in our imagination they begin as a what if and and they may lead somewhere else you know you, you set out to, as a an explorer to discover you know one thing and you end up discovering a complete a completely different thing that's the nature of creativity but underpinning all of this conversation is our relationship with uncertainty mm-hmm. our relationship with that which has not been uh, done before been accomplished before been a question that has not been asked before and it's that that I was trying to get at with A Beautiful Anarchy was this sense that because we're always doing the it hasn't been done before, um, there are no, there can be no, at least in this sphere of kind of creativity, there can be no overriding rules. There are certainly principles, but we just, we get so sidetracked by 
patterns and scripts and rules that we don't jump the rut and ask ourselves, what if? What if we do it differently? What if we do it backwards? What if we look at this from a completely tangential perspective? And and that kind of approach is applicable whether you're making a photograph and just stuck in in kind of it's just not doing what I want it to do. Right. You need the ability to step back and look at it differently. Einstein, I think, was the one that said, you know, insanity's doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results. Right. Expecting a different creativity yeah. is the opposite of that. And and it applies in every field. And it's what I think allows us to to relate to the new and the unknown and to, you know, face issues like like fear. And all of these things are core not only to artists, quote unquote, creatives, but to human beings. Absolutely. We can't, I don't sure. think, I don't think we can escape. I mean, if, if there's one thing I know about human beings, it's that, I mean, the con- human condition, so-called, you know, um, fear is, is very much at the core of that. And that's probably the greatest um, obstacle to creatives. It's the greatest struggle. And, and I don't think it needs to be so damn painful. Yeah. Uh, one of the things you write about that I connect with on a, on a pretty deep level is the idea that we've become addicted to certainty. Uh, and, and this is in our art, in our jobs, in our relationships, kind of across the board. And, and it's without a certain and almost knowable outcome, uh, we get paralyzed by the not knowing. Uh, it's something that I've struggled with for a number of years and even to the point where I've gone and tried to think about it and, and I don't know when it began. It's the strong desire to know what's going to happen before we do something because we want to mitigate the risk. We, we want, um, we want the thing we do to work out the the way we anticipate the very first time and get it done and move on we're so focused on the product of our effort that we sabotage or and and i'm conscious i keep using the word sabotage but i think it's a tendency um to sabotage even uh certainly unknowingly in most cases the, the the process that will get us to and so we want this thing whatever it is you know but because we want it so badly and at the expense of the process, we we cut ourselves off from the possibility of having that thing. Sure. And and I think if we could let go of certainty, if we could be more willing to approach life and the creative process and, and the things we do w- with a spirit of adventure and a spirit of this may not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what if I do this and what and not trying maybe to answer it and get a definitive, well, here is the answer to your what if question, but what are the possibilities? What dozen uh, divergent possibilities could be a result of my asking what if and, and engaging in the process and then then picking one and making a choice. And that's the other thing. We don't like making choices. We, we like sort of A to lead to B. We don't like A to lead to B through Z. Right, we, right. we want just, you know, 26. We don't want 26 options. We want like, boom, there it is. This leads to that. That's not the way life works. You need to make choices right. and you need to own it. And in order to make those choices, yeah, I think you have to be conscious of not only – 
the possibility of failure, but you have to be conscious of what you want. And that's, that also is so much at the core of this stuff. You know, there's this great scene and have you seen the movie, um, Wonder Boys? Yes. Michael Douglas. It's, yeah. Michael Douglas and Toby Maguire. Yep. I mean, it's got a great, great all-star kind of cast. It's a beautiful story. And it's about this, this one-time epic best-selling author who just has this runaway bestseller and his follow-up is just not happening. And he's got like piles on piles on piles of paper that, you know, he's got this 1200 page manuscript and his, one of his students um, who's played by Katie Holmes says, I feel like you're not making any choices. Like it just keeps going on. Yeah. You just, you're writing and and writing and writing and writing. Yeah. And you have to make choices. And in order to make a choice, you have to know what you want. You have to to have a target to hit at. And so many of us, I think, uh, as artists and human beings, are afraid to say, I want this. I want my work to say this. Um, because anytime you pin it down, you are automatically discounting 100 other possibilities. Sure. But you can't, you can't accomplish uh, 100 possibilities all through the same avenue. You may accomplish a hundred things by, it's like a photograph. Let's talk about a photograph. Many beginner photographers, they want their one photograph to do it all. They want it to, you know, they want to point it at a sunset lake and they want to accomplish a variety of feelings and sensory experiences and just get it all in. And as a result, they get nothing. Sure. Instead of the experienced photographer who says, I need to make choices frame by frame. And the frame that says one thing really well will be more powerful than the frame that says a hundred things in such a diluted fashion that it really says nothing at all. So 12 photographs that have, I've made individual choices about those 12 photographs will be much more powerful than one photograph that tries to do it all. And, and we're terrified of that because again, you have to make choices and choices are based on uh, an element of uncertainty. Sure. I don't know if it's going to work. Might not, might blow up in my face. Well, and, and study after study has shown in recent years that we don't do well with more choice, that more choice actually creates more anxiety in us. Uh, and that's from, from menus down to job choices. You know, sure. we, we, we think that we are really efficient multitaskers and we, and we can process in parallel and we can handle all of these different input and stimuli, but, but we really don't do too well at it by and large. No, we're, we're, we're so rubbish at that. And, and I, you know, artists are notorious for, for kind of kicking against constraints. And, and I talk about constraints at length in the book because I, I think in creativity, constraints actually narrow the problem down to the point where it allows you to be more creative in the solution to that problem, whether that problem is how do I express this thing in a photograph or a painting or uh, how do I solve a, a mathematical equation or, or whatever. Um, in our lives, the same thing I think is true. I think we all have constraints and it's so easy to allow our constraints to um, you know, we, we play the victim card and, oh, you know, I would do this if it weren't for that. Well, actually, no, I, the greater your constraints, the greater the possibility of creativity. And you look at someone like Helen Keller, who, my God, if anyone had constraints in her life, sure. Helen Keller had them. And, and through history, uh, there have been unbelievably creative in the, even in the classical sense, people who, who have had mind blowing constraints imposed on them by either their, their health or their circumstance or the brevity of their life or, and yet they accomplished all of this. And, and I think that the, the more we embrace even intentionally 
introduce constraints to our life and our work, the more productive, as counterintuitive as that is, the more productive we will be and the more creative. Because I think, in a sense, creativity and productivity are tied together. Sure. It's not about doing more. It's it's necessarily because that gets you into the uh, I'm going to multitask, which is garbage. It's about doing more without also compromising the heart of the thing that you do. Sure. Uh, parts of this book, A Beautiful Anarchy, which uh, I have now read three times. You are a glutton for punishment, sir. <laughs> no, no. This is one of those books, uh, and it's probably my my favorite book that you've written so far. Um, Thank you. But parts of it uh, remind me a bit of, of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, particularly how each of you value time. Uh, but if, if we take the religion and theology out of it for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, do you believe that we each have a calling of sorts or if not a calling, something that we're meant to discover, we're meant to do, and and at least part of the struggle of creativity is simply figuring out what that thing is. I do. I I very much do, but I would, uh, I would probably work very hard to, um, I'd probably want to have a conversation about what, what we mean by calling. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, the word vocation comes from the Latin vocatus, which is to be invited or called. And, and so it's built right into our vocabulary. Um, so yes, I believe in calling, but sometimes for people that calling is not an external thing, you know, a a calling from the gods or from, from, from a God, but from our talent and our desires and our longings. And it, it could, I suppose, you know, in the case of someone like Rick Warren, who approaches things from a theological perspective, which my book is decidedly, uh, not, I, think uh, my book is uh, uh, probably more a humanist perspective that's informed by some theological ideas. But it is, I I think someone like Rick Warren would say, well, your gifts and your sense of what you long for and desire is, you know, is God speaking or calling through those things. And then we're getting into semantics. I think ultimately the question is not who is calling or what is calling you is that do you feel called mm-hmm. by something? Is there something tugging at you to to do this thing or express this thing? And I just, I, I usually just identify it as our longings. Mm-hmm. I think trusting your gut and listening to your heart. I, I don't really separate the heart and the mind. I, I think that the the idea of balancing the heart and the mind is rubbish. I think integrating the heart and the mind is much more. Sure. um, And maybe that's a little more Eastern than my theology training would be pleased with. But I think it's important that we don't strive for, for balance. We are so rubbish at balance. I, I can't believe after these thousands of years that we're still striving for it. I think you you don't have to balance something that's integrated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like work and play. I come back from these these trips and the customs people as I cross the Canadian border, the airport will say, oh, is it, was it work or play? And I'm, I, I'm not trying to be a jerk, but I'm like, I don't know what you mean by that. Yeah. Yes, please. I've tried so, <laughs> yes, yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. I, I, I have tried so hard to integrate them because work is not... Work for me is full of meaning. Right. Work is is play in a in a in a very um, uh, meaningful sense. So, um, 
truthfully, I don't even remember what the, well, if, <laughs> the okay, question if, if was. We, but if we take calling, calling, if we take mm-hmm. that out of it and, and maybe replace it with uh, propensity or talent or or passion or vision, uh, sure. any any one of these things um, is is at least part of the struggle narrowing that down. And, and then acting on it because you're very clear about creativity is not just having the idea, but it's getting that idea out the door. It's shipping. Right. It's, it's, it's make this thing real. Don't just think of, you know, show me what you did. Don't tell me what you're going to do kind of thing. Right. I, I think so. For some people that is very much the struggle uh, for other people. Uh, they already strongly know that one thing they want. And it's a question of have finding or, um, willing yourself. I don't think we find courage. I think we, we will ourselves to have, have it. It's not a, it's not a thing that just happens to be hiding in our pocket with a bunch of lint and three coins. It's, it's a, <laughs> an intentional act of the will and it's not easy. That's why we, we don't honor fearlessness. We honor courage because courage always, you know, it's like doubt. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is an exercise of the will in the presence of doubt. You know, when things get bad and you put your faith in your loved one, um, that's not because you don't have doubts. It's because it's a response to doubt. And the same thing of, of courage. It's a response in the face of fear. And and I think for many of us, the struggle is not for some, it is ideal. We're all at different points. And the creative process, as I said, is so messy that to be prescriptive about this would be foolish. But to look at the uh, the longings that we have and say, I am going to act on that because I can do no other mm-hmm. and then act and and fail three times. I mean, my goodness, how, how many times did it take Thomas Edison to invent the, the electric light bulb? How many times did the Wright brothers crash their damn bicycle sure. plane sure. Kitty sure. Hawk before they finally got it right? Uh, the courage is in the persistence and in the rigor um, but for some, the courage is just in admitting what they long for because they've been told that they shouldn't want that. They, sh- you know, how selfish to be a uh, to want to be an artist when you have this family to raise. Well, right. in my experience, the people that are saying how selfish of you, they're the ones that are <laughs> are actually um, in their selfishness saying you're not making a choice that feeds the thing I want. Nothing could be more selfish than to say that. Sure, um, we. It takes a great deal of, of courage to say, no, I want this, I long for this, and I will not rest until I, I find a way to accomplish it, whatever that it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a video going around. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's, it's a commencement speech that Jim Carrey gave at the, the Maharishi um, uh, University. And he's talking about some of these very things that, that often we make so many of us make choices based on fear that's disguised as practicality. Mm. And he tells a story of his father who he, he describes as a, as a very funny man and, and, but never, never saw a way for him to be a comedian as a job. It wasn't in the cards for him. So he he says, you know, he, he took a safe job as an accountant. And when I was 12 years old, he says he got let go of that safe job. Yeah. So you, he says that the important thing is you can fail at things you hate just as much as things you love. So why not go after the things you love? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I mean, it's very easy for us to have that perspective, I think. And, and Jim Carrey's 
biography is is fascinating all on its own. I mean, that guy works so hard to get where he is. Mm-hmm. And, but we are, and I include, you know, someone like Jim Carrey and myself, and we are a product of a very unique generation. Sure. Um, you know, our, the generations that came before us, you know, they were kind of um, war generations or post-war generations. We suddenly have, as, especially as creative slash artists, we have an unbelievable, unbelievable ability to create and disseminate anything we long to our music, our art in, in whatever way, mm-hmm. uh, without the gatekeepers, without that sort of need to get discovered without all of that traditional kind of, kind of baggage that our a previous generation would have looked at and said, it's just not realistic. You right. just, the chances are so slim. Now you want to be discovered as Seth Godin says, it's your job to discover yourself right. and publish yourself and get it out there and sell it and hustle and and do your art. No one stands in the way. If you're a writer and you're sitting there listening to this going, oh, you know, I've written a book, but I just can't get it published. Nonsense. I've, I've published what, something like 27 of my own books now. Right, right. And, and, and going on, like, I don't even know the numbers, but going on like 50 books by other photographers. Sure. I mean, I have become, I didn't ever think I want to be a publisher. I just one day woke up and went, Oh my God, I'm a publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> I have been publishing this stuff and, and, and I don't need uh, Harper Collins or, or vintage or, or random house to publish my, my work because I can do it my way. Right. And, and I think it would be very, it would be myopic of us not to at least acknowledge that we have an unbelievable opportunity that a previous generation didn't sure so yeah in 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 the in the sort of history of 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 human existence making a living as an artist or or making a living by doing your art is is a fairly new addition to the kit it is and and the parallel that I make, I'm, I'm actually, uh, this will surprise you. I'm, I'm writing a book right now. Um, David, no, really? I, well, I just thought I'd give it a try and, uh, if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to comedy and juggling. That's right. Um, that's right. But, but the book is about, um, and I've already approached a similar kind of topic in specifically for photographers, but this is actually more about money, uh, for artists, you know, the whole idea of the starving artist and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And the idea that, that I talk about in, in the book is it used to be the case that a photographer or not a photographer, I mean, let's go back hundreds of years that a, a painter would paint and alleviate themselves of the responsibility or the opportunity to, or the burden of making a living by finding a patron. Sure. Well, now we have an opportunity to be our own patron. We have an opportunity through all kinds of different ways to fund our creative effort and to sustain it so that we can create and share. Chase Jarvis, um, the photographer, uh, says you that really all you have to do is create and share and find a way to sustain that. That is the life of the creative. Right. And I believe we have an unprecedented opportunity. You know, Seth Godin says, you know, for the first time in history, the and I'm, I'm roughly paraphrasing, but he says that the tools of production are in the hands of the workers. We have the internet, we have the ability to desktop publish, create movies, create music, to disseminate it, publish it all from the comfort of, I mean, you could be in pajamas in your bed and do it from your laptop. He said it would be a sin not to understand and use those tools. Right. And I, th- I think that this opportunity to be our own patron, instead of whining that no one's discovered ourselves, uh, discovered us, uh, just go do it. 
publish your own stuff, put it out there, develop an audience and, and they will, if you're offering something of value, they will pay you gratefully for the opportunity to have that thing. It doesn't take many. You don't need three million people that love your stuff. You sure. don't need to be the biggest thing on the internet. Um, most people, you ask them about me and, and they would be like, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't need to serve everyone. I don't need an audience of everyone on the planet. I just need enough people that that find value in my, my words and my images and the things that I create that will find so much value that they'd rather have that thing than the $20 because right. they can get another $20, right? but they, they can't get another ebook or another book or, or print that it, that I have made because they can't do my art. And in, likewise, I can't do theirs. So if, if all the artists find a way to, be their own patron, we can have this thriving interchange of ideas and craft and, and art. Um, and, and it's like, it's a win-win. No one is the poorer for it. And sure. it's probably the first time in history we've been able to do that. And, and something to point out for, for those of you who may be listening, thinking, well, it's, you know, it's easy for, for David to say that, that, that he can go out and fly all over the world and make his, you know, cause he's got a book publishing company and he's got this and he's got that. Not so long ago, you didn't have two nickels to rub together. Yeah, relatively speaking, at all. I mean, I you know, I have made. I've. I some people learn because they're just really good at learning, and there's some innate wisdom. And other people are morons, and they learn by being, you know, falling out, falling to the ground a sure. number of times. And and I have, I have fallen to the ground more than my well, so exactly you, you, my fair share apparently. But you, you know, I proof bankrupt. though that this works. Absolutely, I. You cannot, it, it, it's funny because people will say things like, you know, well, yeah, it's, it's easy for him because he's, you know, I, I'm like, I, I'm like everyone else on this planet. I'm just a bunch of carbon. Yeah. You know, I am a carbon-based bipedal life form. I'm relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of this cosmos and I'm, I'm doing my thing. And Somewhere along the lines, uh, I, the way I made enough mistakes that I thought I should probably stop doing that. Right. <laughs> I should do try this, and one spark leads to another. I put out one ebook after a friend kind of basically, you know, twisted my arm, and I thought, all right, fine, I'll do it. And to my shock, people people bought it because it had value. Yeah, this would have been ten, right? Ten, yeah. ten ways okay. to improve your craft without buying gear, and. People bought it to my shock and, and in some ways my horror because then I had to actually, you know, deal with all these thousands of people that were buying, excuse me, buying my book. Um, we all start somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's like saying, well, it's easy for Picasso. You know, he's, an, he's a real artist. Well, there was a time when it was who? Right. <laughs> but Pab Pablo what? Well, and, and you know, that's, that's young arps, upstart Spaniard that can't paint faces without, you know, three eyeballs. I mean, right. it, it's very easy to say that, but the fact is there are people out there who are infinitely more naturally creative than I am in different ways, but we all will do our art according to our nature and to look at another person and say, well, it's easy for them. That's one of those traps that we need to avoid. Sure. It's, we need to, to say, well, okay, what are my constraints and how can I do this? And what do I want to do? Let's just give it a try. Let's enjoy the journey. I, there were 20 other things I tried that you wouldn't have looked at and said, well, it's easy for him. You would have looked at and gone, he's a moron. Yeah, <laughs> Why yeah, is yeah. he even trying? I, I got, finally found that thing that works. And it wasn't because 
It was in front of me all along. It was because all the failures made me, created the person that I've become. And finally, the pieces fit together in a new new and different way that was authentic to my nature. Can you, that's, that's all it is. Can you quantify what had sort of more impact on your creative life, the, the bankruptcy, which you talk about in A Beautiful Anarchy, or the fall in Italy? Is, is, is there a way to, to separate or quantify the effect on your life that each one of those had, or are they so tied together? Well, they're not because they're, I mean, they are tied together. They're sequential. I mean, the, the bankruptcy made me and, and my reactions to it made me the person that I was that then did certain things and had the freedoms to do certain things, eventually going to Italy and, and falling and, and learning new lessons. So, mm-hmm. so I don't look at them as this or that. I look at them as sort of this, then that. And, and they have all had this cumulative effect, just like they do with any of us, just like the book you write or the painting or the, the pottery that you do. Sure. There's a cumulative effect. You start with a, a ball of clay and, and you spin it on the wheel until it becomes something. You, you add stuff, you take it away, you, you mash it back up because you screwed it up and, and you start all over again. And, and it eventually becomes this one of a kind thing, but, but through the mess, not despite it. And, you know, I, I think I quote in the book, you know, a Chinese poet that says what's in the way is the way mm-hmm. we don't do our art despite the constraints and the obstacles and the struggle. We do it through those things and art becomes what it is because of those things. Now, you, you have a, a particular tool set, whether, whether we're talking about a creative tool set or an emotional tool set, uh, you, you, you don't seem to be what I would call an an introvert. Um, but to those introverts who, who, I mean, how, how do you deal with, with not having the right tool for the creative job? Uh, The introvert who wants to be a wedding photographer, for example, uh, who, who has to overcome something very core to who they are to make that really work. I, I don't see them in conflict with each other. I mean, it's funny that you say what you do because I am profoundly introverted. Are you? I am very introverted. But I think we've made too much of this this whole, oh, we've got to define, you know, define and redefine what it is to be an introvert or an okay. extrovert. It, it's irrelevant. The fact is, what can you do? What do you love doing? Where do you go to get your energy? And I think that's a, where do you go to refuel is at the core of the discussion about introversion. But we've sort of... You know, at one point, someone meant something by the words introvert and extrovert, and they were trying to make a point. We're so far from that. This, the labels have kind of, they, they, it's almost like they exist as this absolute thing that now we're trying to find. What is, what is a true introvert? What is a true? Well, it, it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. But for those people who self-identify as one or the other, how do, well, how do they you, come out of that? Well, I, th- I, th- I mean, I do self-identify as an introvert, but only in the sense that it's helpful to me. I understand that I am, I refuel, I get peopled out so quickly, Jeffrey. I do mean, you? After this interview, I'll, I'll curl up on the couch and, and you know, cry like a little girl. Um, that's <laughs> that's unfair to little girls. I will also cry like a little boy. I, but the point is I will still be on the couch crying. Right. And I, but I refuel through going into the woods and being by myself or with one person and having intelligent conversations or listening to the birds or, or just being in the wilderness and quiet. I refuel by coming home from a party. The party is the place where I expend 
my okay. energy. It's, okay. it's exhausting to me. I, that doesn't mean I don't enjoy it sure. to some extent. I may leave earlier and I may in the party be the guy that's in the corner somewhere quiet with one or two people having a, a conversation, not in the middle entertaining everyone. But remember, this is coming from someone who had a 12-year career in stand-up comedy. Right. I would go on to stage and I would entertain for certainly the last kind of five years of my career for audiences that were between 1,500 and 3,000 people. And and I really enjoyed it, but it was enjoying it um, in the expenditure of the energy that mm-hmm. I would then have to regain through being quiet and being myself. I had to put on a character. It sure. was not just my natural, you know, and friends would come to the show and they would sit down there in the audience stunned if they'd never seen my show before. And they'd come up afterwards and say, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Um, that's not the you I know. Well, of course it's not the you I know. Would you, would you go to, uh, you know, to a Shakespeare, you should go to Hamlet and say to the, the guy that's playing Hamlet, wow, that you, you weren't you at all. Yeah. Of yeah. course I wasn't me. I was Hamlet. And, and when I get off the stage, I go back to me, me and I find the energy wherever it is I do. And so if you are profoundly introverted, be profoundly introverted. That is, it's not a liability. It's an asset. Sure. You now know where it is you go to refuel. You know what you're, you're good at. You know what you don't like. And I think understanding that is very, very helpful. So, sorry, my, uh, I have one of these stupid up bracelets and it's vibrating. It's making oh, it's, a noise. I thought it was um, a tugboat outside. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, Are you on a tugboat, David? I am. I am. <laughs> Uh, it's the beauty of being location independent. I work yeah. a third job as a tugboat. <laughs> so I, 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 because, because there's no one else on the boat and I'm introverted. Yeah. So I think. So that's what gives have, you the fuel, like the, the, the camping trip that yeah. you were just on. That's what gives you the juice to be able to do the things that require you to be more, not more than bad choice of words. I'm sorry. Different than the introverted you. Yeah, well, it's, this, it's, it's it, it is the introverted me. Again, I, introvert doesn't, I don't think, mean you can't have a public face or enjoy interacting with others. It's just a question of the, where do I get my energy? It's like a sponge, you know, uh, which, what are you soaking in? And, and what, when you squeeze that sponge, are you, are you, um, you know, sort of releasing out? Sure. And for the introvert, it's, you kind of, you, you soak in in one bucket and release into another. And for the extrovert, it's the opposite. But the fact is, whatever label you apply is is relatively meaningless. What's important is that you're self-aware and you say, where do I get my energy? What do I love doing? And and I really believe that whatever our calling is, however you, however you define that, will be in alignment with our nature. And so being aware enough to say this is, the, and, and unapologetic. If you don't enjoy painting, my God, don't be a painter. Right. You know, like if you just hate it, I, you might want to reconsider that maybe you were meant to be something else. You know, I, it's, it's like the it's like the guy on um, uh, in in Monty Python. And, you know, I never wanted to be a, 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 a whatever, a barber, a, a hairstylist. I wanted to be a lumberjack. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And instead of doing this creative thing, what he always longed all his life to do was hard physical labors, you know, leaping from tree to tree right, in mighty right. British Columbia. Um do the thing that you long for make make something amazing of your life doing what you long for not what someone else has told you to and if you're 30 years old and you don't want to get married and have kids then acknowledge that and make something amazing of your life have a rich a, have a rich life full of relationships that are not children and spouses but that are still full and rich and contribute 
don't buy into a pattern or a script that that you don't want to be a part of. I mean, this is what it means to have integrity. This is what it means to be authentic, to be true to your nature rather than trying all these other identities on for size and then wrestling against them. We spend so much energy trying to be someone we're not Sure. that forget whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. I'm not sure that it's not a, com- a continuum from one end to the other. I mean, if you're in the middle, are you an introvert? Are you extrovert? Are you nothing? No, no, you're just you that just you. has a yeah. particular dynamic of where you get and where you spend your energy. And that I think applies to, you know, creative energy and relational energy. Sure. Everything. This is uh, right in line with uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book, uh, which is living above the 45. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that means and and kind of where that came from and how it ended up in the book? Yeah, it uh, it actually it's funny that you mention it because the the uh, the last three three nights four four days I've been on the road in my Jeep with uh, with my friend Dylan and uh, and he was the one that first introduced me to the idea. He's a lot of fun to be with because our conversations go to areas of creativity and and this sort of thing. And and he was speaking at a at a conference that I had spoken at the year before, and I just popped in to kind of see what was going on. And, and he did this talk about living above the 45. And the, the idea basically is on a graph, if you have an X axis and a Y axis, um, a horizontal line and a, a vertical line at 90 degrees. And, and the one line is your, really your ability. And, um, and I always have such a hard time explaining it because I've, I've sort of forgotten what's on the X and Y axis, but um, one is sort of the abilities that you have and the other is the opportunities that you take. Um, when the two are equal, you have this 45 degree line and, and the idea of living above the 45 is that the magic always happens when your, the ability, uh, sorry, the opportunities that you take are always a little bit beyond your ability to actually do them. That you essentially living above the 45 is biting off a little more than you can chew. And, and the principle is is present in a lot of things. It, it's present in physical fitness and and building endurance. You always run a little. If you always run the same amount every day, you will not grow in your endurance. You will maybe a certain level of fitness, but you will not grow in that. And if sure. creativity is about if if you want to grow in your creativity, you need to take opportunities that feel risky because they don't feel risky when they're comfortable. That that's when you. Above the 45 is where uncertainty is. Below the 45 and at the 45 is where you're comfortable and where things are certain. Because you've done it already, you you can produce a reliable result. It's above the 45 where you're stretching, where you're building those creativity muscles and, and where risk happens, that the magic happens. That's where the best stories are told. It's where the best art is created. It's where the best businesses uh, take a chance and thrive instead of just being you know, the one business that among many others that just never made it because they never risked because they did what the crowd did. Sure. So, so that, that would be the, my understanding of, of, of Dylan's concept of living above the 45, that the magic happens on the raggedy edge where you are, where you are outstripping your ability, where you're 
for to bring it back to kind of my language and the photography world that I, I usually speak to, where your vision outpaces your craft mm-hmm. and pulls your craft forward, where you can't quite express that thing and therefore need to learn a new technique or learn to do as a painter, learn to do something that you've never done before, mix colors or, or something that pulls you forward into that uncertain, risky kind of area. That's where the magic happens. So how do you reconcile the ideas of uncertainty or risk with what Stephen Pressfield talks about in The War of Art, which is more about being driven almost by fear or using using fear as as uh, almost a beacon to point you where you need to be going or what you need to be doing? Yeah, I would say they're two. They're, they're two. Motiv- they're two different kind of motivators. I would say it's yes. Fear does. If you're looking at the paradigm that I'm talking about, the the, the living above the forty five, it is fear. I think they're compatible paradigms. In fact, they're probably the same paradigm expressed in different ways. Fear is what is pulling you. It is that force that exerts itself on you to keep you at or below the forty five, and it is your your willingness to risk it is your courage and your desire to move forward that says no the very presence of fear pulling back at me tells me i need to move forward and in the direction that it pulls me back that opposite direction is the direction i need to move forward so i would say really what i'm talking about is kind of a uh, a war of art paradigm that's just expressed in kind of an inverted way sure sure uh, you you had a uh, an exchange. Can you talk about your exchange with with Pressfield real quick? <laughs> your... yeah, yeah. Well, I, first of all, I need to say I I adore Stephen Pressfield, yeah. and I I will tell most people whatever drivel that I have written that you are currently reading, um, please continue to read it uh, at some point. Continue to buy multiple copies of everything I've written, <laughs> but suspend that activity momentarily and, and get a copy of the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. Be very careful. You don't get the art of war because they're very different books. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sun Tzu the, and, and Stephen yeah. Pressfield, two and very different it, people. Going, this doesn't sound like it's about art. There's a lot of killing and stuff. Uh, but Fisherman's really bloody. Art, he's really, what's wrong with him? Um, to which there's a long, yeah, long yeah, yeah. answer. But the the war of art is about accomplishing our art in in through the metaphor of resistance or even the metaphor of, as, you know, Stephen used in the title talks about the war, the battle, the struggle of art. There is a resistance that pulls us back. And so anyway, I, I sent Stephen, a, a note. I should say, Mr. Pressfield. I, I have such tremendous respect for him. I, I adore his book, and and his uh, subsequent books. I've also really enjoyed his latest ones called the um, the Authentic Swing, and it's fantastic. Notes from the writing of a first novel. I think is the subtitle. Mm. It applies across the board to whatever you're doing, whether you're a writer, or a photographer, or whatever. And um, and so I sent him an, an email, and I've been in touch with him, you know, on a very casual basis. I'm sure he wouldn't know me from Adam over the years. Um, and I sent him an email just kind of saying, you know, you've been so instrumental. Your teachings got me through a really tough time in, in my life. They've pushed me where other influences haven't. And I, I kind of, you know, I said, basically, you're to blame for everything that's happening to me right now. All, all the, uh, <laughs> the, the good things and the, the creativity that's going on in my life, that's basically your fault. Right. And, and I, 
so I told him about the fall in Italy and, and shattering my feet and, and recovering from that and, and this new book. And, and he kind of, he wrote back and said, oh, that's just, you know, that's absolutely, that's an epic story and, and what a saga kind of, kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, downplaying it with some false humility kind of said, well, you know, what doesn't kill us gives us, as Nietzsche says, what doesn't kill us gives us something to blog about. Yeah. And, and he wrote back, which is, is like literally my life motto. And I am actually working on an outline right now for a book called, you know, what doesn't kill us gives us something to blog about <laughs> or something similar to that, because I think there's something there. Right. And, and he's, he writes back and, and says, you know, he says, you, my friend have coined a deathless epigram. Yeah. yeah. What doesn't kill us gives us something to blog about. He says, it don't get much better than that. And for someone that respects a writer who's really, truly paid his dues and has done the work and has created some really, really beautiful stuff. He was the one that wrote the legend of beggar Vance, right. um, among many other things. And there's a, and a took humanity. him years to get, to yeah, get noticed. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is, and it would be like me saying, well, easy for Stephen Pressfield to say, you know, he, all he had to do was write a couple, you know, bestsellers. He, he has been in the trenches and yeah. he knows that this, this sermon he perpetually preaches with such grace, do the work comes from a place of integrity and a place of credibility because he has done the work. And so to sort of get that, that, um, in endorsement or whatever yeah. from from Stephen Pressfield, a man I respect so much, was was a real highlight for me. And, it had to be and huge. It, yeah. it was really great. You know, it was it was an attaboy from a guy that you, you always hope you'll get an attaboy from. Sure. You know, um, I, I think the the great temptation, of course, is then to to rest on that attaboy. The fact is, he like me is just another guy who's doing the work and he's right. figuring it out. And there's no magic there. Um, you to rest on your laurels is sort of the the great sin of of any creative endeavor and and he even says you know the one of the best pieces of advice he got when he finished the book he was writing on you know what did his mentor say great start the next one tomorrow yeah you know or or start the next one if you finish it first thing in the morning start the next one today right right. keep writing keep going because create you are not creating you are not creative until you're creating until you're as um Seth Godin says, until you're shipping, right. You know, right. until you're putting it out into the world, it's not creation. It's just thinking about being creative yeah, uh, or talking about it. Similar stories with, with Stephen King in his book on writing, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, working and working and working and writing and writing and writing. And, and it, it wasn't until they were in pretty dire straits and he'd been turned down by virtually everyone that, uh, that Carrie got picked up. You know, and yeah, and and, and he had a, a, I mean, the moment he got his first rejection letter as a kid, he stuck a nail in the wall and put the rejection letter on it. And there were so many rejection letters. Eventually, I had to pull the nail off because it like it fell off the wall. He had to put a spike in the wall. Yeah, you know, he kept going, and photographers especially. And I, you know, I, I know that there are photographers listening. That photographers especially somehow think that because we have this great camera and because we've put in a year's worth of work, we we have it coming. You know, whatever it is, we deserve some success. And why haven't been, I been discovered on Flickr yet or right. whatever? Why am I not? I've been shooting for six months. Why am I not shooting for National Geographic? Well, <laughs> I can give you a long list of reasons yeah, why you're yeah, not. Yeah. Chief among them is the fact you're still asking that question instead of going out and doing the work and doing the work for its own sake um, and, and trusting that it will get you somewhere. But that wherever it gets you, it won't be where you expect. You know, it, it, it'll, it'll probably be better. Uh, hopefully, but anyone that th- thinks they have it coming, any sense of entitlement 
it's only stopping you from creating better work and hustling even harder. And that's where writers have it on photographers. Writers know they have to hustle right. and they know they have to keep writing and they know that, that it's okay to write a really, really bad first draft and rewrite and rewrite. And photographers think they have to get it right the first time so often that it sabotages what could be because you know, it's like, well, I tried, I try, I put a lens on and I, I made a photograph and it just, it didn't work out. I right. just, you know, well, of course it didn't work out. You know, you didn't make 300, 400 photographs in the process of, of getting that one great photograph. How many, how many great photographs did, or, or even really bad photographs did any of the great masters of photography have to make before they hit that iconic one for which they're remembered? Sure. Sure. And, and we only see that one. You know, we only see the iconic shot. One of the, one of my favorite photography books that I look at a lot is Is the Magnum Magnum, Contact. That's the one. I knew you were going to say that. That's the (laughs) one. I love that book. It's brilliant. And every, as, as gigantic and relatively expensive as that book is, every young photographer, especially those doing reportage documentary style stuff, especially those doing storytelling stuff, they need to look at that book because there are actually photographs that are in there that are better than the iconic photographs they took sure but were chosen for all kinds of different reasons creativity is not tidy it's not a matter of looking at a contact sheet and saying it's this one not that one there's so much that goes into it there's so many reasons why it worked then and maybe doesn't work now there are young photographers that are are frankly they are so much better than the quote masters of photography of yesteryear in part because they have they're standing you know, on the shoulders of giants, as sure. you say. And, and it's very easy to look back at the pioneers. When I, we're, this art is like not even 200 years old, you know? I mean, really, truly. And we're still, we're still so young in it, whereas writing has been around for millennia and painting for a thousand years and, you know, I mean, or, or more. And, and so to, to look at someone like, um, I don't know, pick, pick someone out, out of the blue, to, to look at an early pioneer, um, photography wise, I mean, well, photography wise, sure. like, you know, someone, even like Steve McCurry, because I I've done a lot of sort of the humanitarian stuff and the travel stuff. And, and Steve McCurry was an early idol and I still have a great deal of respect for him. Um, but those of us that have followed Steve McCurry have become as good as we are in part because we're building upon his legacy. Sure. So it's unfair for a beginning photographer to look back and go, Oh, you know, Steve McCurry wasn't that good. Well, at the time he was all that in a bag of chips. Yeah. Yeah. And and he did things that he pioneered. And because of the hard work of pioneering, your work has been made a little bit easier. It doesn't alleviate us of the responsibility to look back and learn what we can from what they created in the context that they created it. And I think that's the brilliance of Magnum's contact sheet book, um, apart from the fact that it's, you know, just absolutely gigantic and you can <laughs> kind of use it, you know, as a kettlebell in your workouts. It's, it's a really unbelievable look into all the crap that these so-called iconic photographers made in the, on the way to getting, right. Cause there's so much luck too involved. You can be as skilled as possible, but if the moment doesn't present itself, um, you don't get it. Sure. You know? And, and we would, we would be guilty of the worst kind of hubris. I think if we didn't acknowledge the role of serendipity and luck sure. in our, in what we do. And I think, again, that's where writers have it. Writers are totally willing to acknowledge that they sat down, they put their ass in the chair, they worked their ass off. And somewhere along the line, 
this idea germinate in their mind and they don't necessarily know where it came from, but there it is and they ran with it. Well, but that's that's sort of the irony of it, right? Uh, many of, of what we've come to regard as iconic photographs are not technically perfect. Uh, many of them are improperly exposed or they're grainy or they're simply out of focus. Yet we've elevated them to this near uh, almost mythic ideal of of what is a good photograph well exactly and we and we have and and this is you know this is largely and i i lump myself in here because i i can't do anything else i the the popular photography education the media have deified perfection we have we have and the camera manufacturers are complicit we have made the biggest sharpest bestest photograph to uh to be so perfect and sterile that it's it's sort of devoid of humanity and life is not like that there has to be there has to be history and brokenness and imperfection and asymmetries and all of this i mean that is the kind of stuff that humans resonate with. We do not identify with perfection mm-hmm. in, in a technical sense. In fact, most of the time, if you look at a piece of Western art, um, which is you know kind of the only art I can speak with any kind of familiarity with, we look at a masterpiece and say, "Oh, it's perfection." When in fact, when there are some of the many of the reasons we resonate with it are its imperfections. Sure, and and photography is of probably I would say of all the arts, certainly one of all the arts most prone to deifying uh, or idolizing this perfection instead of embracing imperfection. It's one of the reasons I love the return to film. I, I love digital photography, but there's something about film and the imperfections and the unpredictability, the slowness of the process that I think is, if not a replacement for digital, because digital has its advantages, certainly a beautiful counterpoint to yeah. digital yeah. photography. A compliment. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I was in uh, Venice for one of the workshops we do and we were at the Treocci gallery, which is a beautiful, beautiful art gallery in, in Venice. And we were looking at Elliot, uh, Elliot Irwitz stuff. And one of my younger students said something to the effect of, yeah, but it's, it's, I don't know. It's, I don't know what the big deal is. I mean, some of it's so grainy. And I thought, oh my God, like it's the thing I love yeah, yeah, yeah. about it is it looks like he shot it on like Delta Ilford, sorry, Ilford Delta 3200. And it's got, you know, grain the size of grape nuts. Yeah, yeah. And there's a tactility and a sensuality to it that's very different than the the so-called perfection of digital. And and maybe that's a generational thing. And, and but, but I don't, and, you know, going back to my friend Dylan, who, who used to work for, uh, he headed up the the Pixar Canada studio here in Vancouver. And we had a long conversation. This is something I talk about in a beautiful anarchy is a long conversation about the too perfect theory. And they entered intentionally introduce in animation, which is a world that they make from scratch, everything they add, they add intentionally. So they could make perfect, you know, like in the movie cars, they could make perfect roads and perfect signposts and cars that are perfect. But unless they have imperfections that hint at a history and a, a backstory and an actual life, because that's the way it is, audiences don't respond to it. Sure. They do not respond to a perfectly simulated world yeah. because it doesn't actually mirror life. Life is as much about the imperfections as anything else. Sure. 
when you come off of a uh, a book project, whether it's a print book or an ebook uh, or any sort of really long form writing project that takes you away from the camera for any length of time, is there a challenge in in picking up the camera and and beginning to shoot again because you've you've spent some time kind of away from it and maybe working with a a a somewhat different uh, set of creative tools? Does that well, make th- sense? Th- yeah, it does. And I, I think the job of the photographer is not to make photographs. The job of the photographer is to be observant. Mm-hmm. And I've been I've been making photographs long enough that the muscle memory will, will I think will always be there. I can pick up my, you know, my Pentax Spotmatic that's God, I don't even know. Is it going on 40 years old now, this camera? I can pick it up and and uh play with it the same way I did when I was 16. I, I know it so inside and out. Mm-hmm. So the, the mechanics of it now are, are pretty ingrained. The question is, have I, have I been observant? And I can do that without a camera in my hand. I always have an iPhone. Right. I often have, you know, my little Fuji or my Leica, but mostly if I'm writing, if I'm in Vancouver, I'm not making photographs. I, it's not what I photograph. It's not what I love right. any more than, you know, Stephen King writes romance novels. It, there's nothing wrong with romance novels per se. It's just not what he does. Right. And I don't photograph when I'm here I, for whatever reason. But am I observing all the time? Oh, absolutely. And there are times when I pull out my iPhone. There are times when I wish I had, you know, my big boy camera or whatever with a slightly longer <laughs> lens. But... <laughs> It doesn't mean that for lack of that camera, I have not done my job as right. a photographer. And I, I, my job is to be present and observe. And and that leads me to experiences in life that I might not have had otherwise. Sure. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know. I like it, It's not that I divide my life up and say, well, now I'm a photographer or now I'm a writer. I, my job is to be perceptive and present and say something that I feel to be true to you know, the world at large and mm-hmm. something of value to my audience. And whether that's with a camera or with a laptop, it really just depends on kind of my mood. And sometimes it's none of the above. Right. Sometimes I just like, you know what, I, I'm not in the mood to create. I want to, I, I just want to read a book. I just want to go out for, for a glass of wine with friends or, you know, have a podcast with Jeffrey Sidoris and, and drink a bottle of beer or whatever. Sure. Um, so I, I try not to kind of split them up, but I do find that the two of them, they inform each other because I get a little bored. You know, if I'm always photographing, I just can't wait to go home and put my camera away and write. Right, right. You know, because the one is a, a bit of a break from the other and most creatives experience an ebb and a flow in their creativity. And if you can have a couple of things that where one creative effort is is ebbing while another is flowing then you can be in kind of a, a little more constant flow. Sure. Even though the disciplines are changing. Right. And some and, people and do one's that with feeding cooking. the other. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. some people do that with cooking. Some people do that with, you know, painting or drawing or writing or, you know, whatever makes you happy. Right. Right. You know, you seem to be a very process oriented person, but with so many sort of projects and outlets and what I assume is a fairly constant stream of ideas. How do you keep shipping? What do you do to take creativity from ideas into action consistently? Cause nothing ever comes easy to me, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I know that it looks like it does. I know it's very easy to look at someone who's, who's written a book or, or done anything of any kind of a, like an athlete, you know, I must've come very easy. Nothing has, has, 
been natural to me. The stuff that's natural just means I have to struggle a little less hard to get there. So I've always been quite um, introspective about my process because especially as a comedian, I, I learned this early on because I wasn't sure why people laughed at the things they did. And I thought if I can figure out why they laugh, I can better craft uh, my comedy writing and, and then, you know, my performance on stage to get more laughs. Sure. And so I studied it. You cannot, I want to be careful that I'm not prescriptive here, but what the hell, I'll go out on a limb. You cannot (laughs) be, um, you cannot separate yourself from the process. It's not magic. It doesn't show up. And the more conscious you are of the road that you are taking and avoiding shortcuts and, you know, staying on that road, the less chance of you driving off the shoulder and into a telephone pole on the way to your destination. Right. The, the greater that maybe that metaphor is not so great, but whatever, the, the greater the chance of you getting there in the most expedient fashion. And because I always learned the hardware, the hard way, I was, I was relatively eager to avoid as many pitfalls as I could. And when I got back into photography after my, my career in comedy, I very badly wanted to get there as quickly as I could. And I couldn't do that just by faking it. Sure. You know, just by kind of going, well, let's see what happens. I wanted to get there relatively quickly. And I thought I'm going to learn, if I'm going to learn digital photography, I'm going to pay attention to the process. You know, I've been a photographer since I was 14, but digital was completely new. And trial and error is important, but you're going to learn through trial and error anyway. So you may as well pay as much attention to process as you possibly can. That does not discount the fact that at a certain point, your process becomes, feels intuitive. And for some people, some of that stuff actually is intuitive and they don't need the they don't need to be as aware. The process is still there, I believe, for everyone, but they don't need, maybe need to be quite as uh, aware about it or you know, spend as much time staring at their belly button as mm-hmm. I do. But I, <laughs> for me, it has always been very important. And I think for photographers, because we're so gear-oriented, because we're so many people get into it because they like the feel of the camera in their hand and they want to be technically kind of perfect and make a perfect photograph, do it right, we skip a whole part of that learning process. Sure. We, we go straight to technicality instead of an understanding of aesthetics and creativity. And many photographers actually find that they have to, having learned the technique, they find that it kind of leads them to a dead end of, okay, well, now I know how to make a sharp, well-exposed photograph. There must be something more. Well, that something more is in creativity sure. and, and the expression of ourselves through the aesthetic of photography. That is entirely process-driven. And that is a perfect place to, uh, to wrap this up. David, thank you so much, uh, not only for writing A Beautiful Anarchy, which I think is going to have a profound effect on those people who read it, but for, uh, for taking the time to sit down and, and talk about it and wrestle with some of these things. I, I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, you know, most, I, I don't know uh, anyone that, creates anything writing or photography that that doesn't even though it's not the primary voice we're listening for you know that doesn't want their audience to say this makes a difference to me yeah you know this is this has done something because at the end of the day um our our lives will be they will feel very short and you want to leave something behind you want to you want to feel like you've accomplished something done something and and even without the sense of legacy this this the great sense of pleasure that i get from knowing that someone out there is is 
experience life, experiencing life in a richer way, even the smallest possible richer way. Um, it, it's deeply meaningful. So thank you. If you'd like to pick up a copy of David's new book, A Beautiful Anarchy, which I highly recommend, head over to abeautifulanarchy.com where you'll find links to both the ebook as well as the print version. Uh, for some of the other books that we talked about, including Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art or the fantastic Magnum Contact Sheets, check out the Faded and Blurred bookshelf. Uh, we've set this up as an extension of fadedandblurred.com, and it has some of our favorite titles in photography, art, creativity, and design. Uh, plus, when you buy a book or two, uh, you're also helping out the show, which I very much appreciate. Just head over to bookshelf.fadedandblurred.com. And if you enjoyed the conversation, uh, be sure to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any future episodes. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, at Jeffrey Sadoris. That's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y-S-A-D-D-O-R-I-S. Uh, if you think you, uh, you know somebody who might make an interesting conversation, send me an email, jeffrey at fadedandblurred.com. Uh, and thank you so much for your time and for allowing me to share this conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back for the next one.